And while the kids are returning to their seats, I want to invite you to open up your Bibles. Acts chapter 2, as Pastor Nate just mentioned. The birthday of the church, yes, but the gift of the Holy Spirit that continues, not just on the day of Pentecost, but to every believer. The Holy Spirit that works faith, that creates faith. And our focus today is going to be the first 13 verses, but we are going to go outside the bounds of those texts. So again, if you have your Bible, uh, you're going to need that for the time of the sermon. But let's turn our attention now to the holy and inspired Word of God. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues of as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Neliamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And they were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, if you have your Bibles open and you keep reading, if you go back down to me to the very last verse of this section, verse 41, it says, So those who received his word, this is the apostle Peter, were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 souls added to the Christian church that day of Pentecost, a powerful outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And as we conclude our sermon series here today on this day of Pentecost, we've been talking for the last three weeks about loving your neighbor. We've looked practically speaking on what that looks like. We've spent some time theologically digging in, you know, why should we do this in the first place? What does the Bible say about loving our neighbor? And today I would like you to think about this sermon, this day as a day of sending. It's time to get to work. It's time to take what we've learned, what we've applied, and to get out there and to actually love our neighbor, to bring this good news of Jesus to those who are far from him. And to do that, we see a great example here in our text. And there's three things I want to focus on. First of all is the Christian teaching that conversion, that transformation actually comes, according to Christianity, from the outside in. And we'll look at what that means for us. Then we're going to look at the Holy Spirit's role in our daily lives each and every day once you become a Christian, this inner renewal that God provides through the Spirit. But then lastly, as we do go out, as you are sent, we do need to make sure of one thing, that we are actually speaking and sharing the right message. There's a message that sometimes we share, but there is one message, a right message we need to look at. So let's dive in. Uh, we're going to start with 
this idea that conversion, this transformation comes from the outside in, and I'm really interested in verse 2 because we get this first sense that transformation comes from some outer worldly place. The text says, Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Now, this reminds me of a, a good friend of mine. In 2005, she was in New Orleans during Hurricane Katrina, couldn't get out of the hotel that she was staying in. Uh, it was the large Hilton Hotel, if you've ever been down there. And she described it like this, that the walls were shaking, the windows were rattling as they were hunkered down in this ballroom of the hotel. And they were wondering if it was so loud, if the roof was going to get torn off the building. And afterwards, she said to a bunch of youth leaders uh, who were at a conference where she was speaking at that this must have been what it was like on that Pentecost Sunday with this wind that was so loud and so devastating, you were actually maybe even afraid of it. Except, let's look at this. Where does this wind come from? This is not, according to Luke, this is not just like a tornado or a hurricane. It says the wind came from where? You can actually talk back to me. It's okay. The, the wind came from where? Heaven, right? And this tells us then that, again, we have and need an external force upon our heart in order to receive this Holy Spirit, in order to be transformed. It also means, if you take this further, that there is something inside our heart that needs to be transformed and changed in the first place. Now, the Bible calls this sin. But instantly, as you hear this, you might also know that this puts us in a rather difficult situation living in the culture in which we live today because the culture believes the exact opposite. The secular culture in which we live teaches actually that transformation must come from inside of you and then go out to change the world. In other words, the culture teaches that the problem is on the outside and the fix, the cure, is on the inside. Christianity, on the other hand, says, no, the problem is on the inside and we need an external force to change it. And here's some examples of what I mean. If you take, spend some time on social media, this one I found on Instagram and Pinterest, uh, this author says, you have everything you need to succeed. It's inside you. A reminder for the day. We don't need to look for things around us to help. We don't need others to tell us what to do. We can do it. It's inside us. Sometimes we just need to dig a little deeper. This shows up in self-help books. If you ever picked up a self-help book, chances are you've seen something like this. This author says that success comes from the inside out. In order to change what is on the outside, you must first change what is on the inside. This shows up at the gym. If you've ever gone to go work out, you might have seen something similar to this. This happened to me just the other day. I was on the bench press. I was feeling pretty good about myself. I look over. There's a guy who is lifting 150 pounds more than my max, and he's doing it multiple times. And I look at this guy, and I go, wow, he must have great faith in himself. <laughs> Super strong, ripped dude. Believe in yourself. And then we also see this in other places. This pops up all the time. I I started subscribing to an app called Calm. It's got great white noise. I'm one of those guys. I can't sleep without some white noise in my head. Uninterrupted white noise. And this message, by the way, is not brought to you by Calm. So don't get any ideas. We're not being sponsored. But great app. What I've noticed, though, recently is it's had more and more what is now known in America as the fastest growing religious movement in America, Eastern Meditative Principles. And this particular psychologist was walking people through a meditative process for those who have frustration with colleagues. 
Now this, you know, got my attention because after all, I have to work with Pastor Nate all summer long. So with Scott being gone, I am joking. Just so everybody knows. My, my love language is sarcasm. I have to sometimes explain this to people. And in this particular meditative process, the author says this, if you, not if you, but when you have conflict with your colleagues, because it's impossible, we live in this world where even the best of environments, there's going to be conflict. There is something that you can do to help you manage the inside so that you can then go and change the outside. And he suggests this, first of all, do some deep breathing exercises. Inhale the calm, breathe out the tension. Then he has you imagining that you are sitting next to somebody who you really, really respect and admire. It could be a boss you get along with. It could be a parent, a wife, a spouse. And you think all these good things. Essentially, you're sending them, you're praying something out of your heart into existence, into the ether. It's like you're praying from within to transform what's on the outside. And then you do this. You say out loud, again, a prayer. May you be healthy. May you be happy. May you be at peace. And you repeat that until somehow you know when it's time to move on. And the second step of this meditation process is you think of somebody that's a little bit more further removed from you, a barista at a coffee bar, a waiter or waitress that you come in contact with. And you do the same thing. You pray internally, press upon the outside world. You say, may you be healthy. May you be happy. May you be at peace. And when you're done with that, you close your eyes and you imagine that your enemy at work is sitting in the room with you, the person in which you're having conflict with, the boss that you can't stand, and you do the same thing. You breathe in, you breathe out, and you pray from your heart out into the external world. May you be healthy, may you be happy, may you be at peace. And according to this guy who did this meditative process, that is actually how you can change the situation of the conflict at your work. Do you see the difference? The culture teaches that there's nothing wrong with you. The problem is outside, and you have to fix yourself in order to fix the brokenness outside. Christianity teaches something entirely different. Paul says this, for example, in Romans chapter 7. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. In other words, there's something wrong with me. I try to be a good person and I fail. I try to do the right thing and I struggle. And he goes on to say this. He says, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And then he gives us the antidote. Again, he's saying an external force outside of yourself has to come inside and fix what's broken on the inside. And he says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is a difference in thinking. This is what you would call a different worldview that begins from an outside pressure, an outside force, the Holy Spirit, and works its way into your heart and changes you, transforms you, and then you can go out and be a change agent, a transformation agent, agent in this world. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. But then what happens once you convert? Once God has done his work, once God has changed your heart, you do have faith in Jesus Christ. Those of you who are Christians here today, watching from home, it gets even better because the Holy Spirit promises to renew your heart, not just once at your baptism, at your point of conversion, but each and every day our hearts can be renewed. I was thinking about this as I was studying the text, and I think we we oftentimes forget about the power of the Holy Spirit. We give the Holy Spirit lip service, And where we see his work is really in verse 3, these tongues of fire. 
Now, how many of you have read this? You know, we, if you've grown up in the church, you've read this, and this might be a little bit hard for you to believe, that actual little tongues of fire showed up on top of the disciples' heads. And maybe we read this in a modern world, and we go, oh, that, that probably didn't happen. That was just like artistic rendering of what it was kind of felt like in that room. This is not what Luke is saying. Luke is saying there was actually tongues of fire, and it has everything to do with the Old Testament, because in the Old Testament... Many, many times when the glory of God was revealed, when God revealed his glory, he did it in the form of smoke and fire. So for example, Abraham, the far father of of the nation of Israel, Abraham marries Sarah, but God first gave Abraham or made a covenant with Abraham. And you remember how he showed up in this vision? Abraham's in a deep sleep. God shows up as a flaming torch and a smoking flaming torch. When Moses encounters God, He shows up in a burning bush. When the Israelites are running from Pharaoh, God protects them with a pillar of fire by day, a pillar of smoke by night. I'm thinking of the prophet Elijah. We're going to look at this story next week, actually, when he's having this epic battle between the prophets of Baal. God reveals his glory with flames coming down from heaven and burns up the altar on top of Mount Carmel. That is the revealed glory of God. And these tongues of fire are meant to tell us something. That now because of Jesus, because of his death and his resurrection, we have a new relationship with our Heavenly Father. And the glory of God, his very presence, now rests with every believer, not just the chosen nation of Israel, but every person who would come to faith in Jesus Christ. The nearness of God is theirs. The presence of God rests upon them, lives inside of them. That's what the tongues of flame are showing us. and has everything to do with the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. So let me show you this picture. If you're not getting this understanding of the Holy Spirit, this is a picture of my daughter Madison when she was four years old. She's a teenager now. It really freaks me out, 15 years old. She's four years old in this picture, and when you're four years old, you have a sense of who your parent is, your mom and your dad. She had a sense that I was her dad. She called me daddy. She knew that I went to work and that uh, somehow the work from both me and my wife Amanda provided for her needs like food and shelter and clothing. So she knew on some level that I was her dad. But on this particular evening, it's late in the evening, we're at a wedding, she's getting fussy. She doesn't want anything to do with this wedding anymore. She's about to uh, lose her mind and have a temper tantrum. And I picked her up put her on my shoulder, and she instantly fell asleep because she was tired. But see, in that moment, now she is feeling my love. She has an understanding of the nearness, the closeness of my love. She's experiencing this external force. My arms around her, she felt so comfortable in my arms she could fall asleep. You see, this is the role of the Holy Spirit. When you're struggling in your faith, when you're going through a time of trial, when you're not sure what you believe about God, if you've picked up God's word, if you've listened to a sermon, you've listened to a podcast, if you're having a conversation with your friend, and in that moment of that conversation or the study of God's word, if all of a sudden your mind was renewed and you started to go, wait a second, if God took on human flesh, if he came down to be one of us, 
if he risked his life, gave his life for me, and not only forgives me all my sins, but now actively is preparing a place for me in heaven, like Revelation 21 says, if God did that for me, why am I worried about this external thing in my life right now? If you've ever had that experience, that was not you doing the work. That was not you psychologically bettering yourself and deep breathing exercises. That was the work of the Holy Spirit oppressing the nearness of God upon your heart that you have a dad who loves you. You can put your head on his shoulders. He wraps his arms around you. He would do anything to be in relationship with you. That is an inner renewal that can only come from God himself through his spirit. So we have an outside force of God working in. We have this inner renewal. This is why the Apostle Paul says, therefore do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. And if that's you, if you do call yourself a Christian here today, if you do have saving faith in Jesus Christ, then let's get to the heart of why we're here and make sure that we're actually sharing the right message. I don't know about you, but when I have sat in many, many Pentecost services growing up as a kid and as an adult, I tend to think and have before thought that this mass conversion, the 3,000 people who come to faith in Christ, I thought that it was because of the miracle that they witnessed, the rushing wind and the tongues of flame. But on careful reading of this text, that is not why the people converted. Let's open up our Bibles once again. And look with me at verse 6. It says that at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. What's the sound? Well, first of all, it was the mighty rushing wind and then it was the people speaking tongues, speaking in tongues, speaking the gospel in their own language. It was that, that, that sound that brought them together, but notice there are no baptisms here. They haven't converted. And then jump up to verse 11. It says that, the people were saying, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. That word mighty works, it's a Greek word, megalia. It describes not only all the work of the Old Testament that God did, the creation, again, pillars of fire and and smoke, the deliverance that God provided for his people, but it's also speaking about the mighty work that Jesus did on the cross, the megalia on the cross, the conquering of sin and death, and then finally the resurrection of Jesus. That's what these guys were talking about, but this is really just phase one of the conversion process. Because if you notice, there is no baptism. There is no mass conversion. Instead, if you keep reading in your scripture, Peter stands up and does what pastors often do. They preach. And Peter gives this sermon where he unpacks the gospel. And he ties in the Old Testament to the New Testament and the people are listening. The Holy Spirit is applying that pressure upon their hearts, externally transforming and changing from the outside in. And then Peter says this, verse 32. God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. And when the people heard this, not the mighty rushing wind, not seeing the tongues of flame, when they heard the gospel, that they have a God who forever loves them, that gave his life for them. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do to be saved? It was the gospel. 
When you're out there having conversations with your non-Christian friends, the temptation might be to talk about other things. And your non-Christian friends have questions about Christianity. They want to know, what does the Christian church teach about gender and marriage and women's rights and all these different things that come up? We have to avoid that temptation to going there. Because the transforming message of the gospel is that Jesus Christ came down to this earth to save because Jesus Christ loves. That's the gospel. You know, just the other day, I had an experience like this. I was at a wedding where I was asked to do, or a wedding, I was at a a party, I was asked to do a blessing. So I stand up in front, I say a blessing, I say a prayer, I go to grab a drink from the bartender, and the bartender says, so what is with these Lutherans? I understand you're a Lutheran. What's with these Lutherans? And it turns out that her brother uh, or her sister is dating a Lutheran pastor. She grew up Catholic, has been far removed from the Christian faith, and shows she's interested in this Lutheran thing because all of a sudden her sister's dating a Lutheran. So we start talking, but she didn't want to talk about uh, uh, any of those other things that I was bringing up. She had one question for me. She said, so what do the Lutherans believe about weed? That's what she asked me. (laughs) She was curious. I think our temptation is in those moments to talk about the morality teaching of the Bible. The things that the Bible says are sinful and the things that we shouldn't do. And the temptation is to unpack that and somehow try to explain it. But what I did, by God's grace, is I very, like a politician, somebody said during Bible study, I sidestepped the question. I said, well, here's what Lutherans believe, that that, um, we have a God in heaven who loves us and that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins and that he's never going to stop pursuing us. And I was like, if you're... Uh, sisters marrying a guy like that sounds like a pretty good match. And I grab my drink and I go back down and we sit down and we enjoy the rest of the evening. The temptation is, is to talk about what the Bible says about these external issues. And here's what we believe in what the Bible says about that stuff. When a person first hears about Jesus and they come to saving faith in Jesus, that is entirely, entirely up to the Holy Spirit. And then if that person, by God's grace, decides to pick up their Bible, God's Holy Spirit is going to convict them of the things in their life that don't align with the Christian faith. That is not our job. Our job is quite simply is to point to the one who can actually change their hearts, to point them to Jesus proclaim from the mountaintops this God who would stop at nothing to win us into himself, who has more love built up in his heart for your unchristian friend or coworker or neighbor than you could possibly ever even explain it. That's who we point to. The Apostle Paul says this as we wrap up here. Imagine the Apostle Paul. He gave so much for the Christian faith. He was He was abused, he was tortured, he was whipped, he was put in prison. And as he got towards the end of his life, he was given a very incredible opportunity. He had a chance to not only speak the gospel in front of the king of the region around Jerusalem, he had the chance to speak the gospel in front of the Caesar, the most powerful person on planet Earth as well. And this is how he describes his mission at the very end of the gospel or the book of Acts. He says, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the what? The good news of God's grace. May we, 
as members of our Father Lutheran Church, as a connected family, go out into our neighborhoods, go out into our community. May we love our actual neighbor, and may we, by God's grace and by his Holy Spirit, point them to the God who saves. Amen.